0: Well, I hope you are having an uh, uplifting week. Uh, joyful moments are being shared because tonight we get to talk about gang rape, uh, civil war, and kidnapping, kidnapping virgins. Welcome to the last three chapters of the book of Judges. Uh, I joke a little bit. I think uh, Leland purposely planned to be gone these last three chapters uh, and not have to you know, speak of, of the subject ...that uh, God addresses in this inspired book of history. As you look in these chapters, if you'll open your Bibles to Judges 19... uh, ...and we're going (coughs) to, like I say, try to briefly touch on these three chapters... ...and we try to bring the study to to a close... ...and then Leland will kind of sum it up, Lord willing, next week. But the two verses I want you just to kind of take note of... ...or glance glance at at the beginning of our study is verse 1... In chapter 19 and then verse 25 in chapter 21, which basically serves as a bookend of these three chapters. But also it really is descriptive of the entire time period of the judges where it says, you know, there is no king in Israel and they did what was right in their own eyes. So you think about that concept, the idea of no king in Israel. And I think it's so much more than the fact that, okay, uh, they didn't have King Saul, King David, King Solomon. But I think it's a principle, uh, a very uh, profound spiritual principle. And and I I like to kind of sum it up in this way in saying that the people submitted to no authority except their own. And that basically they each were their own king. There was no king. And so they became a king to themselves, which obviously when you take a culture and a society, that that's kind of, you know, the guideline, the rule. It's going to lead to chaos. It's going to lead to disorder. And it's going to lead to immorality and ungodliness and all kinds of evil. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Judges. And you think, okay, well, that's the way the world is. But that's really not the context of Judges. The world, what's the context of the Judges? Who, what people are we talking about? Israel. Israel. And who is Israel? It is God's people. It It is people who have been chosen of God, sanctified by God, and set apart to be holy. And they are far from that at various times in their life. That is not to say, though, in this time period that they had no law. They had law. And they had laws, you know, which every individual Israelite was accountable to. You know, you have beginning in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and all of the rest of the ordinances and the statutes that God gave them through Moses. And God's law and laws, however you say that. Governed every aspect of their life. Every aspect of their life was governed by the law of God. You know, their personal life, their uh, civil life, religious life, whatever you're talking about, the law of Moses, God's law, addressed that. So they had those laws. But in the time period, um, the judges, you know, when, the, as it begins... That next generation grew up and they did not know God. They did not remember the great works that God had done for them and among them. So therefore, it's described, okay, it's a time where there is no king. And, and they're just you know, just doing whatever they want to do, whatever's right in their own eyes. And that manifested itself in different ways. And you see that here in the book of Judges in the last three chapters these events at the end of the chapter are dated by the high priest who is serving in this period. Does any of you know who is the high priest during the time period of Judges 19 through 21? Phinehas. Phinehas is the high priest at the time period of Judges 19 through 21. He is the grandson of the first high priest Aaron, you got Aaron, Eleazar, and then you got Phinehas, and so just kind of to kind of put it, in, the dating of these three chapters are not at the conclusion of the you know, of the book of Judges from the standpoint of chronology. These events that occurred in nineteen through twenty-one, dated by the fact of the life the lifetime of Phinehas, you have a man who was a, a he was grown, he was an adult at the time. Of Numbers 25, and Number 25 was when you got the, you know, the sin of uh, Peor with the Midianite women. Does anybody remember what Finahaz did to stop God's judgment upon them? He wasn't a boy then when this happened. He ran a spear through through the Israelite man and the Midianite woman. He ran a spear through a couple. And it took that to stop the plague that God had sent upon them for the abominations and, and the sin that they were committing you know, with the Midianite women. That's Phinehas, Numbers chapter 25. He is, we are told in Joshua chapter 22, verse 30. So you have you know, at the time of the conquest and dividing of the land, uh, of the promised land. Before Joshua dies, Phinehas is serving as priest. And so what that implies is that these last three chapters are not like near the end of the period of the judges. You're looking at the front end of the period of the judges. This happened early on, this particular event involving gang rape, civil war, and the kidnapping of virgins, you know, you, know, you think about that's the that's the time period it's early on in the period and you think about the cycles of they did e- they forgot god they did evil well this illustrates it in just one one aspect of that i want to read before we start looking at some of the, uh, at the different events and like i don't have all the answers to your questions of the things that you know, that happened here it is just a terrible time of what transpires. And and there's probably big question marks about how could God allow this? Why is this happening this way? And I don't have the answers to those questions. But we do have God preserving this history for us to see what happens when there's no king in a person's life. What happens when men do what is right in their own eyes? And this is what happens. Even among God's people, people who have been sanctified by God, when they no longer recognize Jehovah God as their sole king and they have forgotten God's laws and they stretch doing whatever they want to do. This is what transpires. And so when you turn over, hold your space, obviously, in in Judges 19, we're coming right back to that. But I, I do want to read a few verses in Nehemiah chapter nine. Nehemiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 24 through 29. And what this is, this is a, a prayerful praise that is being offered, offered, offered up to God by the Levites in Nehemiah's time period. And much of it is a confession of Israel's past sins. And as I read it, I particularly want you to hone in on verse 26, because these, are, these verses basically fall in the time period of the judges. And verse 26 is just a profound commentary, in a sense, to this idea of when there's no king in Israel and when you do whatever's right in your well, How did this happen? So beginning in verse 24 in Nehemiah chapter 9. So their sons entered and possessed the land. And you subdued it before them, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gained them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, huge cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate were filled and grew fat and revelled in your great goodness but they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might so that they might return to you and they blast, and they committed great blasphemies therefore You delivered them into the hand of their oppressors, who oppressed them. And when they cried out to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers, who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion. The phrase I want you just, just for a second to ponder on is there in verse 26. Is when they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs. It is a perfect commentary to what occurred in the time period of Judges and why. Why was there no king in Israel? You know, why were they doing what was right in their own eyes? It's because they disobeyed their one true king, Jehovah, and then took his law, and they cast it, they threw it behind them, and, and, and turned away. And in a sense, totally forgot about it. And so when you summarize the, these three chapters, 19, 20, 21, you have, first of all, in chapter 19, a horrible crime... Is committed. In verse 20, you've got a civil war breaks out in an effort to administer justice against the crime. And then in the last chapter, you have the effort to preserve a, a tribe that was nearly annihilated. So that's 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 the description of these three chapters. And this happened in the days of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, who is high priest, ministering to the people. And so it's an interesting, complex time period that you have a man like Phinehas, who back in Numbers would drive a spear through a couple that is committing immorality. And now here he is still ministering to the nation as God's priest, and these are some of the things that are happening around him. So in chapter 19, as we turn there, as it open up opens up, I kind of sum up the chapter by saying, Unfaithfulness is manifested in people's lives when you have no regard for God's laws. Behind your back. You have no regard, you have no thought for the laws of God, whatever they are. Any one of them, you have no regard for that. What's going to happen? What's going to happen is in man's relationship. There's going to be all kinds of chaos and disorder, and unfaithfulness is going to be one of them. And so it opens up with the story of a concubine wife, you know, of, of a Levite who who, com- who commits harlotry, is unfaithful to her husband, runs away. And, and that's how the story opens up. But that shouldn't surprise us. When already you have a time period of spiritual harlotry being committed against God, when already you have a time where God's laws are being thrown behind your back, you have no regard for who your true king is. And so already there is spiritual unfaithfulness scattered throughout the land. It should not be surprised surprise to us that physical harlotry is on the increase. The physical hoditry is gonna is gonna be on the rise because you have no regard to it, the standard of holiness and righteousness that is from God. And what's just kind of, kind of unique in this is the fact that uh, you have it opens up with this unfaithfulness, and then immediately you see you got the husband who wants reconciliation, and he seeks reconciliation. And it appears to be, you know, there are signs of forgiveness, there are signs of forbearance on the part of the husband wanting his unfaithful wife to come home. And to me, but yet to me, I can't help but think of the prophet Hosea. When God divinely instructs Hosea to marry a woman that God knows is going to be unfaithful, and uses the life of Hosea to illustrate what God was dealing with constantly, and and here here we see that in the land, this is happening. This is happening in this man's life and in this woman's life because the nation you know, is is being unfaithful. And so, but it does appear that uh, you know, the husband you know, wins back the heart of his unfaithful wife. Yeah, from the fact that she does invite him into her father's house. And you have the whole unfolding of the, that event where the father keeps wanting to detain them, doesn't want to let the, let them go back home. Does that sound like an earlier story in the biblical account? Anybody think of another story where there's a father you know, kind of holding back you know, his daughter? Anybody remember? What I I think, I think of Jacob. You know, Jacob and Laban. Now, not, it's not the same, uh, same kind of incident, but you, you have a father detaining you, you know, you know, his daughter from leaving. Uh, with Laban, the motive is, uh, I would suggest, covetousness. He has been physically prosperous. He, is, he has prospered because of Jacob. And God blessing Jacob. And so he doesn't want Jacob to go. And he recognizes that. So there's a sense, and, you know, I would suggest, there's a bit of a, a greed or covetousness. But you have the same idea. A father not wanting to, let his, to say goodbye to his daughter. But you think about in the, in the land of Canaan. So, you know, you know, so you've got, you up. you got the Levite is from the, you know, the hill country of Ephraim, you know, that would be kind of the northern section here. You've got, you know, they coming down here to Bethlehem, you know, so that's kind of in the south, you know, but it's not a great distance in mileage if you drive by a car. It's not a, you know, but that's not how you're you're going to get from place to place. And so you've got a picture, okay, you know, you go by foot or by donkey everywhere you go, and and so it, the, the idea of geographical distance would definitely impact the difficulty of saying goodbye, you know, to uh, a family member that you're not going to see very often. You think about today, we can have family members who live on opposite ends. Uh, of our country, and our country is huge. But you think about it, and we mean, and we won't see each other as often as we'd like. But you think still today the the ease, you know, costly yes, but you think being able to get on an airplane and fly from the east coast to the west coast, and how and, and we just you know we take we take that for granted. You know, and so do you think about the, the culture here? And so you got, you got this father detaining the family. And it seems to be that uh, you know, finally the, the husband, you know, he, he's gotten a little impatient. No, I'm leaving. I don't know what kind of time of day it is, but I'm leaving. You know, he said, I'm ready to get home. And to me, when I think about that whole unfolding of thing, the, the the simple thought or principle that struck me is this. That actions and choices have consequences. The simplest action and choices have con- consequences, <laughs> and for most of us, we have no way to know how things really will turn out. Yeah. You know, you know we, we go from point A to point B. We can go from you know this side of town to you know all the way up to you know to the side of town the markets live on. Yeah, you know, that's a good little good good little drive. You know, to go from here to there. You know, they always and so we think okay, this you know. Yeah, know, it's routine. But what can happen? We see. Something can happen. And so we see that consequences and actions of the simplest kind can have, you know, you know, well, actually choices and can have consequences that we have no way to know what will transpire. Because that's exactly what happens in this story. You know, the father had no idea by detaining them, you know, so that the, you know, the husband, you know, in his impatience, that may be a little bit you know, uh, too cr- critical, but you know, he's, one, he's ready to leave and go home. It causes him to you know, not be able to make the journey you know, home in one day. Or get closer into a safer area. The yeah. father has no idea. He's you know, he, he just trying to entertain his, his family. And of course, you know, the husband has no idea what, you know, what's going to happen. And the city of Gibeah. Simple choices, simple actions, sometimes can have concepts we have no idea that we're going to have to endure. Because in this story, a journey home leads to tragedy. A journey home leads to tragedy. The implication in the context when they're traveling, you got the servant who says, suggests, you know, hey, why don't we stop here overnight in the city of Jebus. Someone tell me what the city... What what does the city of Jebus become? It becomes Jerusalem. Now, you know, when... Here's a little trivia question. When is the city of the Jebusites finally conquered? At what time period is it finally conquered? In In the reign of King David. So, you know, so the Jebusite city here in the the middle of, of this area surrounded by Israelites is in their control you know, much later in history. You know? And so it's not until King David is king that they finally take it, defeat it, and it becomes you know, Jerusalem and the capital for the nation. But you have, it seems to suggest that, that when, the, when the service suggests this, that the Levite you know, probably feared for their safety. He probably feared for the sake of staying in the forest, and no, He had no, you know, what, what could happen. You know, so that, that could be an implication. Now, we don't know that for sure. But that could be an implication. But he decides to travel a little far. Let's, let's go and let's stay with, you know, uh, relatives. You know, let, let's stay with some of our cousins. Let's stay with family. So they, you know, so they travel on to the city of Gibeah. Now remember, Israel is God's called out people. Israel is God's chosen people. And they are to be different. They are to be better. But that's not the case with Gibeah. Gibeah is no better than a foreign city. It may be that Gibeah is even worse than Jebus would have been. And to me, what it illustrates is the fact that their failure as an overall responsibility. Remember, when they conquered the land, you know, every pocket wasn't uh, removed. So every pocket of foreigners was not removed. But what was the responsibility of the tribes? They were to continue and they were to remove that. And God, God would lead them in that. And they would be successful, but they needed to take the action to do that. They to do that. They to carry out God's instructions led to what God had warned. And so, that would, you know, so that's really what happens here in Gibeah. Because they hadn't done what they should have done. You've got pockets of immorality. You've got pockets of idolatry. And it has infiltrated. It has infected. It, is, it has corrupted God's people. For example, in Numbers chapter 33... Is when Moses is instructing the nation about conquering the land, at least one of the occasions, but numbers 33. I very quickly just want to read verse 55, the last verse of the chapter. Earlier on, it talks about how you know there's a crossover and drive out the inhabitants and destroy everything. And and and, and you'll possess the land, it'll be yours. But in, in 55 He says, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes, as thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. How could Israelites in Gibeah get this immoral? It's because of the influence. That they let stay around them. And they had cast God's laws behind their back. And so it's interesting, when you so they, they go into, into Gibeah, and you know, it's interesting the first sign of, uh, of apostasy is the fact that Gibeah was not hospitable. That's the very first sign of apostasy. Because in the culture of, of, of the ancient uh, Old Testament, in the time period of the days of Israel, hospitality was a major component of a way to serve. And it was valued, it was treasured, it was something you, you, know, you had, if you had any opportunity, you grasped it you know, and, and held on to it. You, know, you, you saw it as a privilege to serve others. And particularly if they were Travelers. Gibeah. They say come in and come into the, the, you know, the court, the marketplace, whatever you know, in the center of the city. No one, not a single Gibeon a Gibeonite. If I'm saying that right. Uh, opens up their home to them. Instead, it's an Ephraimite who's living in Gibeon Who's an old man who's coming in from working out in the fields. He's coming in at the end of the day. He sees them and he is determined to not let them stay outside. (coughs) Why? Well, because he knows. And so it's interesting to think of this idea, you know, this hospitality, this love of strangers has diminished in the land. And so you have a, a town of Israelites that are quite unfriendly even to their own people. And yet, in, in a very dark place like Gibeah, there's a light. A light is shining. And it's shining ever more brightly because of what this man does. He steps up. He sees, sees the situation. He sees an opportunity. And he's, gonna, he's not only going to provide them you know, whatever nourishment they need, he's going to make sure that they are you know, protected from their, their own city. But sadly, what we have, history repeats itself. And so, in verse twenty-two, you have you know men come knocking on the door, and it's a repeated history of what story? Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, way back in the days of Abraham and Lot. And so here are you know here here is the descendants of Abraham, you know relatives of Lot, who are you know, who have basically have declined in their unbelief and in their morality so much, they are repeating a history that brought down fire from heaven, and and God destroyed those two cities to ash. But that's once again, why? It's because the people of Gibeah had turned their lives away. They've cast God's law behind their backs, and they have sunk to this level. But it's, it's really reminiscent of even what Romans 1 says, is it not? Every generation, whether it's the generation of Genesis or whether it's the generation of Judges or whether it's the generation of Romans 1 <coughs> or whether it's the generation of 2021-2022, every generation that serves and worship the creature in that sense, really, what there, what, what is happening is when, when a generation serves and worships themselves, whatever, in whatever form they do it, when they worship themselves and not the Creator, well, then that generation becomes depraved. They become like the, the people of Gibeah. And so when you read this, this chapter, it, it, is, it is sickening, really, uh, to think of the idea of the utterly selfish baseness of this one group this mob mentality of immoral lustful men and on the other hand the cowardly cruelty that is also going on there's two things happening here you got the you got the people on one side of the door and you got people on the other side of the door and there is fault on both sides. On both sides of that door, there is some fault in my estimation. You have a lack of respect for human life. Both sides of that door. And then you have the extreme. We've got this whole out of control uh, mob mentality. And yet you have this host you know This Ephraimite that has shown kindness and generosity in hospitality and what a light that was in this dark place. But you've got this host that considers the sins of violating a man's hospitality and homosexuality as the worst sins. And they are terrible sins. But at this time, for the most part, that was still considered socially taboo. And so he had this pose, considering the thought that, you know, that hospitality would be violated and that he would throw you know, a man into the hands of these wicked people. You know, he says, that's the worst thing possible. And, and yet you see the abusive immorality against a woman as a lesser sin. But that's the culture you lived in back then. Is because they cast God's law behind their back. You have a generation or generations, plural, that have forgotten God. They haven't been taught God and they don't remember the works of God. And so they've now become a God to themselves. They've become king to themselves and they're just doing whatever is right in their own eyes. This horrible text, the cruelty of The baseness. This text is not justifying what the Ephraimite suggested. That's not what this text is doing. It's just not sugarcoating anything. It's not justifying the Ephraimite suggestion, nor is it justifying what the Levite did when he threw his concubine into the hands of those wicked people. God was not approving of, God, of man's solutions to this problem. God is not approving of this solution. He's just telling us. He's preserving, for as long as time can He's preserving the fact what happens? What happens to a culture? What can even happen to people of God if there is no authority, there's no standard of righteousness and godliness upheld? When the objective law of God is cast aside and we become our own laws, what happens this is what happens. This is how degrading mankind can and does become. And so it ends, you know, with the, you know, the just terrible scene. You know, you know, trying to imagine, you know, this abused woman crawling back to the door and dying. With the Levite opening it up, speaking to her. And saying basically, "Get up, woman," but there's no sound. She's dead. To me, the last two verses of chapter 19 really belong to chapter 20. Yeah, because it's it's really the introduction. It's the introduction to what transpires in chapter 20. And so he picks up his wife, her body. He carries it back home, you know? And what you have in this chapter, chapter, uh, chapter twenty, you have a call for justice to be executed upon the guilty. And so, they, you know, like I said, it's not like you know, okay, we cast God's law behind our backs, but there's a sense, there's still a sense, okay, justice needs to be done here. You know, there's still some sense of okay, you know, what's right and wrong. It may be completely skewed. And totally out of balance and not based across the board, applied to everybody like it should. But there, you know, there is a sense here, okay, this should not have happened. And so there's a call for justice to be executed upon the guilty. And so what the Levite does, as you know, in your reading of, of God's Word, is he takes that body, he dismembers that body, and, distrib- and he distrib- distributes, disperses the body parts, yeah, to 12 tribes 12 tribes note that because at the beginning of chapter 20 as he as he sent the bodies you know the, the body parts to the 12 tribes and with that, the mess, you know, you know, the message coming across. He says, "Nothing like this has ever happened." Verse thirty at the end of chapter nineteen, or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt. Today, consider it, take counsel, and speak. And so they here's okay. We need to gather, and we need to think about this. We need to talk about this. We need to you know, and, and take into take into heart what has happened among us. This has been done by our family. They're all related. They're all family, the twelve tribes. And this has been done among them. And so it is not only an affront against Benjamin, it becomes an affront against the entire nation. And so, yes, you know, it was an awful message, but the, but the message of those body parts got their attention. It did what the Levite intended for it to, to, to do. And so they do, they do. They all assemble. And when you read in, in, in the chapter, you see the passion of the nation that had been stirred and provoked because as they come together, it, 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 that coming together is described as what? They were as, as what? Yeah. This nation was as what? One? One man before the Lord. You know, here you have this message goes out. They are aghast of what, what they're witnessing. Um, now, you know, it, it could even be perhaps some of the body parts bear, bear wounds of what has transpired. You know, you, you know, the imagination is almost limitless here. But it grabbed their attention and they come together and it says in verse 1, they they congregated as one man to the Lord at Mizpah to consider and decide what needs to be done. And it was agreed that Gibeah must be punished. They came to that agreement. Gibeah needs to be punished for their lewdness. And disgraceful actions for the sins that they've committed as one nation, they have come to agreement on that. And so, yes, in this moment we see, okay, justice is going to be met. I want you to consider you know Deuteronomy chapter 13 very quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 12, 12 through 18. You've got a little different scenario being described. But it talks about the idea if there is a city, if there is a city that you know, is influenced, is seduced, in a sense to to turn away from God. So in, in chapter thirteen, kind of verse twelve to verse eighteen, he says, "If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, saying," Some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. He said, you shall investigate, you shall search out, you shall inquire. And if it's true, he says, yeah, yeah, about this abomination, verse 15, he said, you shall strike the inhabitants. It's not the exact same scenario, but I can't help but there is similarity. Here is a city by their actions. in a sense, have seduced the inhabitants of that to the point that that, this kind of immorality is publicly being done and nothing is being done about it. And we also know that law clearly taught that the death penalty for such crimes as murder was instructed. That was part of God's law. On certain sins... Depending on the nature of those sins, the death penalty was a means of God's righteousness and justice to be upheld. But you see some wisdom because they didn't just go and meet and say, okay, let's just, you know, let's, let's just strike the city. What's the first thing they do? They send messengers, they send men to the city, and they first ask the city or they ask the tribe to do what? Deliver them. Deliver the guilty people over. So they can be judged and they can be punished you know and and so you see you know, in the sense in that moment there is justice the crime needs to be punished you know the guilty need to be dealt with and so they ask Benjamin the trying, he's saying you know here turn over the guilty people but instead they're in action they would not do that and they defend them and so now civil war breaks out and so you have Twenty-six thousand Benjamites gathered for battle, and you have four hundred thousand you know, sons of Israel gathered about it. And it sounds well. Well, clearly the odds are not in Benjamin's favor. But unexpected disaster happens, and you think about it, unexpected disaster. What can that do to your faith? Can it cause doubt? Can it cause disappointment, discouragement? Surely, yes. And that's exactly what happens. You know, what's interesting, you have in, in, the, in the unfolding of this, event, you have the sons of Israel, the, you know, the 11 tribes, inquiring you know, God before battle each time. You know, but remember, 12 pieces were sent out. Benjamin got a piece of her body. And what's the response? Let's defend our guilty. You know, our guilty family. Let's defend them. Let's protect them. God's law had been cast behind their back. But you think you think about the progression here of this, the inquiry and you know the loss of life, you know, when you look at the numbers, basically in the first two day, in the first two battles, you know, the sons of Israel lost 10%. Forty thousand men died at the hands of the Benjamites, the ones who were defending the guilty criminals. Forty thousand men died, and so then they inquire the third time, and the third time, finally, God says, "I will now deliver them into your hands." And perhaps the question is, why? I don't have all you know, have the, perhaps the answer to all the questions, but here's some here's some thoughts just to throw out to you: Was God testing their faith? Could that have been at play? You know, was Israel needing proper humility and reverence in the process of the execution of justice? Did they need to learn something in their relationship to God? Or was it simply a lesson about God is the one who delivers versus man's might you know, delivers? You know Which one, or if, it, if not maybe all of those, perhaps are plausible suggestions. <clears throat> but here are some just interesting thoughts. The first time they inquired, the text says they inquired of Elohim. The second time they inquired, they wept first. Before the Lord, and then required, they required of Jehovah, which is the covenant name of Elohim. So they inquired first of Elohim, they wept and inquired secondly of Jehovah. The third time, they wept, they fasted, they offered burnt and peace offerings, and then required of Jehovah. And God says, I will deliver Benjamin into your hands in this final battle. But that victory that is given to them with God's help leads to the devastation of the tribe because it extended beyond the battlefield. It went past the battlefield to the towns of Benjamin to the point that only 600 men Survived. And so when they defeated the men on the battlefield, the sons of Israel basically almost wiped out the family of Benjamin. (coughs) Women and children alike. So what may have begun, and this is a thought, you can just ponder it, but what may have begun as an execution of righteous judgment could have turned a bit here and becomes a vengeful extermination. Because they lost forty thousand of their own men, and they were not the guilty party. Interesting scenarios to think about how unexpected disasters occur. We're not going to be able to finish, obviously, the chapter and, you know, the the three chapters. But as you get into chapter 21, what you have unfolded to me is basically you have first, like chapter 19, you know, a journey, a journey home leads to tragedy. And then you have, you know, in in chapter 20, you have this call for justice to execute, you know, judgment against the guilty. And, And that that is a good call. And a right call. But then. As it unfolds. And as it, things happen. And it goes from. Not only. You know, defeating the, the army of Benjamin. To basically. Almost wiping the entire tribe out. It is in the next day or so. The enormity of their actions. Sobers their hearts. You know. They've stopped, you know, and now they think, what have we done? What have we done? We have almost wiped out one of our own people. And so in the the reign of this chapter, as you know, uh, you have the unfolding of their attempts, you know, to try to... Bring about renewal, bring back life, you know, you know, in restoration to this tribe, you know, so you have, uh, you know, perhaps in some of this, you know, the idea of the vows that are going back and forth in, in, in this firing of events, be careful what you say. And yet you have, then one, to you uphold know, the vow, and at the same time try to rebuild the tribe, and so uh, they're going to slaughter another city. But it's seen as not so much as a punitive action, but really the primary focus is a revival for a tribe. And so, yes, so Benjamin you know, is going to be restored in, you know, through some very interesting means you know that man decides is the solution. And Israel will have peace for a time, but everyone is still doing what's right in their own eyes. Thank you very much for your attention.